You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. So this uh, year we are doing a thing called 2020 Vision, and you now are reading every week on this little bookmark that's in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have one, take one of these. But every week I'm asking you ahead of the sermon to read the scripture for that week. So this last week for here on 3-1, you would have read Luke 18. If you haven't read it, you'll get the chance a little bit today whereas we're looking at a portion of it. But we want to go all the way through the book of Luke. And then after Easter, uh, in the early summer, we're actually going to start and go all the way through the book of Acts through the end of the year. And so we want you to know where we are every week, and we want you to read that, then get in a circle group, and you can unpack that and lean into it a little bit more as you get the chance with your circle group during the week. But today, we're going to talk about Luke chapter 18, and, and what i got to let you know is that the more familiar a story becomes the more it cries out to be rescued from the barnacles that have attached themselves to it over the centuries. Like a story becomes familiar, but all of a sudden a little bit of extra gets added to it. Like, let me tell you a couple things that were never in the original Christmas story. No donkey. Mary and Joseph got there, we don't know how. But your nativity has a donkey, and there's no donkey in the story. Okay, so just as an example, there's one example among many for even just the Christmas story of how barnacles get attached to the story that aren't actually accurate. If you think of the, the classic Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, there you've got Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. This fairy tale is likely based on the tragic life of Marguerite von Waldeck, who is a 16th century Bavarian woman, and Marguerite's brother used to run a copper, uh, a copper mine, and he would employ small children to work in the copper mine, but because of the demands and the physical labor and all, many of them were deformed, and they would be disparagingly, disparagingly referred to as dwarfs. Well, Marguerite... Her stepmother, despising her, sent the beauty to the Brussels court to get rid of her. But there, Prince Philip II of Spain became her lover. And his father, the king of Spain, opposed the romance. So he dispatched Spanish agents to murder Marguerite. And they knocked her off with poison fruit. That's the real story. Uh, but then, you know, you see this other picture of, you know, uh, of Snow White. And you see here, you got the little dwarves, they're all old guys, they're all circled around her. Stories morph, don't they? They change. So it's important for you and I to remove the add-ons and get to the original meaning. And in most cases, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus talks about today, he makes up a parable, a story with a point, and he wants you to understand the meaning. He wants you to understand the point. And in this case, in this story that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18, most people think it illustrates the pious Pharisee's prayer with the honest, sincere prayer of the tax collector, his humble prayer. And it makes most people, when they read the story in Luke 18, it makes most people respond with, well, at least, thank God, I am not like that tax collector. And when you and I have that response to this story, in most cases, it shows that we actually are like the Pharisee. See, this story is not about prayer. That's not Jesus' point. This story is actually about self-righteousness and those that believe that they're good based on their own efforts. And so open with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Here's why you need this sermon. God wants you to see people as he does and love people like he does, and that is hard for you if you're self-righteous. 
It's really hard for some of you. So in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9, Jesus is speaking to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Self-righteousness. Jesus is telling this story to people who believe they were right within themselves. They thought that they were good by their effort, by their actions. In fact, they looked down on everybody else. And Jesus would know in the crowd, as he would look around the crowd, he would say, you're like that, you're like that, you're like that. And he wouldn't necessarily point it out, but in his heart, in the spirit, because he knows all things, he would know the hearts of the people listening. So he makes up the story to give them a point. And he begins to say to them, that the humble one is the one who gets justified before God. But for some of us, self-righteousness is a real deal. What does self-righteousness mean? It means believing that you're right within yourself. You just think that you're good, you're all good within yourself. You trust yourself, you trust your goodness, you trust your righteousness. But I wanna let you know something, only God is truly right. Only God is truly good. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. Only God is good. But the self-righteous person loves this verse. This verse is Matthew 5, 48, which says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so some of you, particularly if you look at the Enneagram, if you're a one, you love that verse, be perfect as your Father in perfect, because you think, there's a chance. There's at least a chance that I could be perfect. But the truth is, when that verse is translated, it really means this, be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. That God not only is complete in the righteousness that has existed to us through Christ, but that he also loves completely. The problem with the self-righteous is that they love themselves and they despise everybody else. Because nobody else is as good as them. Well, God wants you to see people as he does and love people like he does, and that can be hard for some of you. Write this down if you're taking notes. The Pharisee stands by himself to avoid being defiled by those he despised. And he offers prayers spoken out loud. So you gotta get the picture here. Any Jewish person would understand what Jesus is talking about, but you and I, we're American, uh, we don't understand. We just think there's like this prayer gathering. No, what's happening is every day at the temple, at three o'clock each day and at dawn in the morning, the priest would carry the incense into the temple and the people would pray outside as their prayer meeting in the morning and at three o'clock in the afternoon, they would pray outside until the priest came back out of the temple. So he would carry the incense in, they would pray and pray and pray, the sacrifices had been given, he would come back out, they would stop praying. So this is the picture. This is the prayer gathering where Jesus is illustrating in his story. Everybody would be thinking about this. So this, in Jesus' story, becomes a perfect opportunity for the self-righteous Pharisee 
for this time of public prayer to give people some unsolicited moral advice. So he decides to stand up, and as everybody's praying out loud, he decides to pray a little bit louder. I mean, when else might these people have such an opportunity to be in the presence of a man like this Pharisee? He thinks he's giving them a gift. I mean, have we not all at one point or another heard a lecture kind of disclosed or like hidden within a prayer? Someone's praying, but they're really lecturing you. Someone's praying, but they're really giving you a little sermonette. Yeah, well, that's what the Pharisee is doing. In fact, the Pharisee's words don't even fit the category of a prayer. He's not confessing sins. He's not thanking God for the gifts that God has given him. He's not giving thanks to God at all. He's not even making requests for help. He's just saying how great he is. See, those overhearing would realize that this guy, he's praying out loud, but he's not actually praying. So anybody listening to this story is hearing the story of this pious Pharisee, and they realize that he's lecturing the masses in a prayer gathering, but he himself is not actually praying. You would say to yourself, well, I would never do that. Well, sometimes you do with your kids. See, I would never do that. But let me ask you this. Who do you stand apart from? See, the Pharisee stands by himself. Why? He doesn't want to be around the regular people and be defiled by them. He's not going to stand in the back where this tax collector guy is hanging out. He's not going to stand in the middle of the crowd. He's going to stand apart. Let me ask you, who do you stand apart from? My son Zachary has an, an immense amount of compassion. We were in Nashville recently, and we visited this one site, and there was a homeless man sitting on the steps. And my typical reaction is, just let the guy be. He's just chilling. Just hang. Zach's reaction is always, let me go have a conversation with him. He just has a compassion. And I realized time and again, in those situations, Zach does what Jesus would do. He just has a natural compassion for people. And he, God uses it. And it's a beautiful thing. But who do you stand apart from? You might be unwilling to go on a mission trip to see people in poverty or to think that the travel is too much. Or you, you might stay away from messy people in the workplace or in your apartment complex or in your neighborhood. You, maybe you're one of these young and upcoming angry fundamentalist Christians who is stacking up a whole list of theological ideas and principles that basically set you apart from everybody else and you think that you're right. And let me tell you, in some senses, you might be correct, but you're still not right. And there's a whole load of young people right now who are just clamoring to have this, a theological box in which they can put God in and put themselves in because it distances them from everybody else. And maybe that's you. You can be correct and still not be right. Well, the Pharisee distances himself. He stands by himself. Rather than comparing himself to God's expectations of him, he compares himself to others. Isn't that easy to do? Well, I'm not as bad as them. You can always find a them, by the way. No matter how bad you are, you can always find someone worse. You just look around a little while, you'll find them. And that's exactly what he does. He's not comparing himself to the law. He's not comparing himself to God's expectations. He's not seeing his own need for forgiveness. He's comparing himself to others. And so he gives God a short list of his views on the unrighteous, right? God, I thank you I'm not like other people, these robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, tax collectors who had rejected their Jewish brothers and sisters to collect taxes for Rome. 
and to cheat their brothers and sisters to pad their own pockets. He's saying, God, I'm not like these adulterers, these evildoers, these robbers, or this tax collector. He's comparing himself to others. And then he proceeds to list his self-righteous accomplishments of tithing, and then he says, I I fast twice a week. Now, anybody listening to this who's a Jewish person uh, might be impressed by that when you know, he says, oh, I fast twice a week, but you got to realize something. According to the Old Testament law, there was only one day of fasting a year for the people. One day. It was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Now, most Pharisees would actually make a practice of fasting two days before and after each of the three major Jewish holidays. So Pharisees would go, yeah, yeah, the law tells me just fast one day, but we're going to fast two days before and after each of the feasts that are happen in the calendar year. So they're going to kind of go, yeah, yeah, the law says this, but we're going to up the practice to make ourselves better than everyone else. However, Jesus, which by the way for them would be 12 days a year, And Jesus makes this Pharisee say that he fasts two times a week. That's 104 times a year when only one day is required. Do you see what the self-righteous do? Look at me. I'm overachieving. I'm overperforming. I'm going to make myself better than everybody else. And any Jewish person listening would go, this guy's proclaiming that he fasts 104 times a year when only one day is required by the Old Testament law. I mean, I don't know about you, but it reminds me of how my vegan friends talk about food. Right? Like, you eat less food than everybody else, but you actually talk more about food than everybody else. If you have your vegan friends and you're at a barbecue, they talk about food the whole time. You're just like, send me the barbecue sauce. Like, I'm just filling my plate, and you're telling me why, you know, these these animals, doesn't matter if they're free range. Like, you just got the whole thing, right? The person limits the amount of food that they eat, the types of food they eat, but they talk about food more than anybody else. Maybe you have a friend like that. Write this down. The tax collector stands at a distance and he beats his chest where his heart is located. You know, the Bible records one other time when people beat their chests. And that was those who were witnessing Jesus on the cross at the end of the day, Luke 23, verse 48 says, when the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. It showed just how distraught the people were at the grief and the reproach of the day that Jesus, the righteous one, is sacrificed, that he's been crucified in front of all of us, the least who should be crucified, the most righteous one has been crucified, and they beat their breasts because they understood the unfairness. And Jesus, as he forecasts, he tells the story about a tax collector who stands in the presence of God and beats his chest. Here, this man is distraught at his own actions. He's asking God to make atonement for him. Maybe in your translation it says this, God have mercy on me. But please understand that the full weight of the Greek word that I think really should be used here in this situation, there's no reason to minimize the word to have mercy. The full weight of the word is make atonement for me 
a sinner. You say, what is atonement? Well, both men are standing at the temple and right then an unblemished sacrificed lamb has been sacrificed. This perfect lamb has been sacrificed. The blood has been splashed on the altar. The blood has been splashed around. They've seen a blood sacrifice. Then the priest takes the incense and he lights it and he goes in the temple and all the people pray because atonement, a blood sacrifice has been made for them. And here the tax collector stands far off and he stands at the back and he just prays, I don't think that's gonna do it. Like God, could you in your grace, in your mercy, could you make atonement for me, a sinner? I can't earn it. I don't have a blood sacrifice to give. But I'm standing here, I'm aware of my own sinfulness. I'm saying, God, make atonement for me. He begs God, make atonement for me, a sinner. I've got a friend, John, and as he tells this testimony, he was down at a biker church in Southern California when he first started getting curious about God, and, and it was at that church with a bunch of bikers and a bunch of tatted out, rough looking people. And he's like, these are my people. And like, he's just, you know, he was like, okay, God, I'm gonna give my life to you. And when he finally gave his life to Jesus, he came forward. They gave a little time at the end. He came forward and he laid down in front of the stage and he just begins confessing his sins. He's confessing to God. Sometimes that he'd been involved in some gang stuff and some shootings and his adulteries and his beatings that he's done on people. And he's face down at the front of the stage and he's just confessing his sins to God. And at one point a dude comes up like, man, are you okay? Like, do you need? He's like, no, man, I need some more time. And he just is like, I'm, this is where I need to be. I'm right where I need to be. What's he doing? He's laying on his face before God saying, God, make atonement for me. He's being real. He's not painting a, a good face for church. He's just being honest, and that's what the tax collector is doing. He's standing in the back, and he's just being honest with God. Write this down, God shows compassion and atonement to the meek and the humble while rejecting the arrogant. Jesus said, verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee talks like there's nobody else on earth as good as he. But the tax collector talks like there's no one as evil on earth as he. Do you see the difference? Write this down. Only those who sense their unworthiness in God's presence can appropriately receive God's offered grace. So when we bring ourselves humbly before God, and by humbly I just mean honest. I don't mean fake humility. I don't mean like trying to overdo everything. I'm just saying just being honest. Would you just be honest with yourself, honest before God, and honest with others? That's what the tax collectors do, and he's not putting on airs. He's not giving a public lecture, but the Pharisee is. When we bring ourselves humbly before God, he offers us grace and atonement. See, we're not making ourselves more or less. We're just being honest. And it's in that moment when you and I are finally honest before God See, when you stiff arm God, when you put him off, when you stall him for a while, God's patient. He just waits for you. I'll wait for you to do what you need to do, but I'm just waiting for you to be honest. Just be honest with me about your life. Just be honest with me about your relationships. Just be honest with me about what you're doing. Just be honest. 
And God waits. But when we come before him with honesty and humility, it's there that God begins to allow you and I to breathe in grace. You say, Dave, what do you mean breathe in grace? Grace is free. It's a gift. You can't undo it. You can't earn it. And you cannot buy it. But let me tell you, you can stiff arm it. You can reject it. You can stay in a state of your own unworthiness and never let the grace of God be extended to you because you feel ashamed or you feel guilty. And God is saying, breathe it in. It's okay if you stand at the back, but be honest before me and then breathe in the atonement. Breathe in my grace. You couldn't behave your way into it and you can't behave your way out of it. The Pharisee is trying to behave his way into God's good favor. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't work. Only one man went away justified. And it wasn't the guy trying to do it on his own effort. Didn't matter if he fasted 104 times a year. Jesus is saying, be honest. Breathe in grace. Some of you, that's hard to do. Because you might want to believe on the inside that God's done with you. Or that you've done too much stuff. Or he's disappointed with you. Or he's given up on you. And that you're going to have to strive and to earn his favor back. And God's saying, just breathe it in. I shed my blood for you. I poured it out for you. Atonement has been made for you. So to breathe in God's grace means you rest in his love and not your own striving or your own effort. It's his acceptance, his forgiveness, and stop putting barriers in the way of God's grace. It means spending time to God to receive his wholeness and his cleansing, his complete delight in you without pretenses. Just be real, be honest, and guess what? You can leave here today far more free than you maybe walked in. You didn't behave your way into God's grace. And I want to tell you, you can't behave your way out of it. Just be honest with God. Maybe today is the day you need to come before him and say, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. And guess what today is? Today is the day we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that his body was given, his blood was shed. And it's a reminder to those of us who have come to faith in Christ that atonement has been made. Jesus is saying, I will. And I have. And I would again just for you if it required that. That's how much I love you. Maybe today you're like, God, just make atonement for me. Here's where I am. With all honesty, here's what I've been doing. Here's what my life looks like. Here's the ways that I've done things outside your will. Here's some things I should have done that I didn't do. And God, I'm just coming before you to say, make atonement for me. And he does. God would hate for that tax collector to live in a constant state of unworthiness. I think Jesus tells the parable to let them know that, listen, when you're honest before God, you don't have to stay in this continual state of like, I'm just so broken before God, like I'm just always unworthy, and then I'm always a sinner. No, Jesus said he's justified, just as if he never did it. He was honest, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. You're clean. Don't stay in a constant mopey state. Don't come every time before me in a state of unworthiness. But when you're honest with me 
and you breathe in my grace, you see that my atonement has been paid for you, for your sin, and you have been washed clean. We're not to stay in the state of unworthiness or get stuck there, but that we're walking the freedom of the grace that Jesus gives. As we prepare to close, and we're going to go into a time of communion, but before we get there, I just want to give you opportunity with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life. That maybe today, for the first time, you're realizing that the cry of your heart is the cry of that man to say, God, make atonement for me. I can't earn it. I can't undo my sin. There's nothing I can do. And God, I want my sins washed away. I want to be washed as white as snow. God, I want to be forgiven before you. And I don't have anything to offer but my, my prayer to say, God, I'm being real with you. I just need you. And if you've never received Jesus in your heart, then you pray a prayer like this right now in your seat. Just quietly, God hears you on the inside of your heart. You pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, today, make atonement for me. I could never buy it. I don't have a sacrifice. I'm just being honest with you. Would you wash away my sin by your blood? because I believe you died on the cross for me, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. And I receive your gift of grace. Wash me as white as snow. Cleanse me of my sin. Make me a new creation on the inside because today, Jesus, I ask you to make atonement for me. And if you pray that prayer right now, just raise your hand anywhere around the room that today was the day you prayed that right over here on the end right over there in the middle would you just raise your hand we'd love to see you all the way on the end if you're up in the loft my friends will see you up there and believers in the room right now as we come to a time of communion would you just ask God again to be honest with him the scriptures tell us to examine ourselves when we come to a time of communion would you just examine yourself would you be honest about the ways that you're walking within the will of God but also the ways you're not and would you just have the cry of your heart God God, I realize that I want you to make atonement for me and I'm reminded by the blood and by the juice that you have and that it's good enough for me. And believers in the room, would you breathe in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we pray this in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.